0: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court to adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do.
1: I do. Nothing further from the service. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed.
2: Welcome to The Wigs, the only podcast featuring Practicing Barristers talking shop. I am your host, Jim Minns. In this episode, The Wigs tackle two topical legal issues. Firstly, the controversial failed prosecution of New South Wales Minister Don Harwin. And secondly, the operation of the New South Wales High Risk Offender Scheme, under which people are detained and monitored for being an unacceptable risk of further criminal offending. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Wigs. This is the show that I haven't thought of anything fun or funny to say to intro it. So let's pretend that I just did. Ha! ha, ha, ha. And now let's move on with the show. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by Felicity Graham. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Good Great I, to have you. Hey Jim, the best Emmanuel Cook, Hello, welcome. I, I
0: feel like there's a loss of effort in that intro. No, well, next I, I'll
2: work on it next time. I swear yeah, to God, it is also one of your best. Well, that's thank right. you. Well, that's inc- I'll take that. We're all still laughing. Um, well, mate, I'm not nominated for the best civil libertarian for nothing. All right, so and Mr. Stephen Lawrence, thank you.
3: Hey Jim, good to be here. Good to
2: have you here yeah. in person, in mate, the flesh. It's
3: a civil liability award?
2: Is that right? Isn't it? Yeah, that was isn't that award, my isn't joke. It? No. So we are nominated for the, for those, okay, a bit of background, for those of you who are not familiar, the Whigs, the show, is nominated for the Civil Li- Liber- Li- Not Liberties Award, the Civil Liberties Award.
0: Journalism
3: Award.
2: We're, we're journalists now. Mm-hmm.
0: By the but time we, this comes out, we would have lost. Yes. So, <laughs> commiserations <laughs> to everyone.
2: And we um,
3: can't believe that Kate McClymont won.
2: Yeah, well, good on her. Congratulations, Kate. Is she
3: a civil libertarian, strictly? I just posed that question. It can be edited out. Were you on any topics for today? Okay, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen,
2: we are starting the wigs tonight with a very sensitive topic. Um, uh, Maybe. I haven't really read the brief, I'm sorry. But I do know that Emmanuel Kirkosherian is taking. Is that right? Were you
1: listening when we were interviewing. (laughs) Weren't you listening when we were interviewing Andrew Bowe about the importance of reading your brief? I
2: was. And can I just add that, that, can I preface that that interview took place? momentarily before this actual recording, so hence... No, no, um, it was Wheat Senior. Uh, you know, it was, it was, yeah, no, so, the know. audience yeah, doesn't know. Yeah, yeah.
3: Uh, now we're professional. We are.
2: So Mr. Emmanuel Kirkosherian. No, me. <laughs> <It's Mr. laughs> and I'm talking about Don Harwin. Mr. Stephen the Don Lawrence. Harwin Affair.
3: Please take it away. Okay, well, I'm talking about the Don Harwin Affair. Yes, of course. And that is a recent scandal in New South Wales politics that raises a real question about whether we had a political prosecution of a Minister of the Crown. So, uh, the background to it is that during the height of the COVID-19 public health restrictions in New South Wales, uh, back in April, a scandal broke where it was alleged that a Government Minister, Mr Don Harwin, who was then and is again the Arts Minister, and I think Aboriginal Affairs maybe also had breached the public health order that was in place at the time, which restricted us to being in our homes, basically, (coughs) unless we had a reasonable excuse to leave. Uh, The factual circumstance was that the minister owned, um, or still owns, a unit in inner Sydney and also had a house that he owned at Pearl Beach, um, up on the Central Coast, um, a very nice part of the Central Coast, I think. Um, On the 8th of April uh, this year, Sydney Media published a story alleging, and it was true, that Don Harwin was staying at his place in Pearl Beach. There'd been a couple of media controversies internationally. I remember there was, I think it was a minister in the Scottish Government who resigned because they had been found not to have been abiding by the public health orders. Mm -hmm. I think there might have been a senior medical uh, person as well. Um, in the UK, so there's a bit of media attention around this issue of whether um, elected leaders uh, were complying with the public health le- uh, orders that yeah. all the rest of us um, had to comply with. Yeah. So the Telegraph. What um, was the
2: so? What was the order? Like you couldn't travel to the regions if you lived in the city.
3: You couldn't leave your residence Could, uh, without a reasonable excuse. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then the public health order, in a kind of curious way, stated that. Uh, having a holiday in regional New South Wales is not a reasonable excuse. Right, 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 right. And I think that might have been something added at the request of the National Party and was probably unnecessary because the other aspects of the order already would have prohibited um, a holiday, essentially. But
2: Mr Howen did own the property, you have said that. He
3: owned the property, Mm -hmm. and the public health order in question made it very clear that a reasonable excuse would include moving between more than one residence yes. that the person has. Yep. So if you had more than one residence, you could move between those. Yep. It's very clear in the public health order. Yep. So on the ninth of... Sorry, on the 8th of April, uh, the Telegraph published a story which included a picture of Don Harwin And um, another male person who apparently was staying at his Pearl Beach house at the time and basically made the very clear suggestion that he was in breach of the public health order uh, because he was at Pearl Beach and not at his unit in inner Sydney. Um, Shortly after that story was published on the morning of the 9th of April, Mick Fuller, uh, the Commissioner of Police, uh, was doing media and he said uh, that he would ask for an, an explanation from the Minister through the Police Minister and indicated that if the explanation didn't stack up, he would certainly issue a fine um, against the Minister. And he was ultimately fined, and uh, the fine and then the charge that was laid in court after Don Harwin elected to have the matter dealt with in court, which is a right that anyone has who's issued with a fine um, in New South Wales, um, alleged that... He had breached the public health order by failing to reside at his primary place of residence between the 1st of April and the 8th of April.
2: So, who added the word primary place of residence?
3: Well, that was, as I understand it, uh, the allegation that the police made, mm. and it's completely unclear, and I'll come to it in a moment, Sorry, how that is a sustainable allegation of a breach of the public health order, Yeah, because the public health order spells out certain reasonable excuses, mm. and one of them is to move between places of residence mm-hmm. if you have more than one. Mm. There's no primary? In there. no, that's no, that's right. right. Oh, yeah. So, he was immediately stood down from Cabinet. Mm. So, a very significant matter for him personally, in terms of um, his salary, I suppose, his position um, in the community, Uh, but also significant for the community, in the sense that you have a minister uh, doing their job in government, Um, he's elected by the people, and all of a sudden, because of uh, this allegation, he's forced to stand down so a very significant matter. Um, As I've said he then chose to contest the matter in court which people have the right to do under the Fines Act um, and other pieces of legislation. Uh, The matter was uh, prosecuted by the DPP upon the election to deal with it in court Um, and that's because even though it was obviously a minor matter just um, a fine uh, that carried a thousand dollars an allegation of a breach um, of the Public Health Act that is not, in all the circumstances, that serious.
1: Although, upon electing, then the maximum penalty of six months and New South yeah, that's Wales right. applies. Yeah. So it does actually become a jailable offence. It's not
3: DPP serious. No, no, I mean no, it's, it's normally not. the sort of matter that the police would appear and prosecute. Absolutely. In, uh, but there's a specialist unit in the DPP, which I think is called Group Six. Is it? I think it's changed its name now. I yeah, think. has it? Okay. Yeah. yeah, it was known as Group Six, who prosecute politically sensitive matters, corruption matters, matters involving serving police. Uh, so anyway, so they took courage of the matter, and they almost immediately dropped the charge. And the matter had been listed initially for hearing later in the year, might have been in August or September.
1: I think October.
3: Yeah, I think o- mm. yeah, I think it was October. Yeah. And it was brought forward and dropped. In court and brought forward very considerably and there was a little bit of controversy at the time about whether he was getting special treatment because the DPP had brought it forward. I've got to say that wasn't really a theory that was all that attractive to me because I think the DPP would normally take into account that someone's work is being affected in this dire way, if they've formed the view that a matter um, is going to be withdrawn or dropped, uh, if they've looked at it and formed that view, it doesn't seem that unusual to bring it forward and drop it. Uh, But I could be wrong. Is that your experience?
1: It seems... (laughs)
3: It's not my experience. If they've formed that view.
1: I think it's entirely appropriate if they formed the view that they're going to withdraw a matter that they don't just wait until the court is listed in six months' time or Mm. something to do that. Whether or not that is... What commonly happens, that's another matter. Mm. But I think that's entirely appropriate.
3: Mm. I mean, I think commonly, you're right, Manny, they wouldn't look at it. Yeah. Right, and it would just sit in the system. But if something happens, irrespective of the status of the person, that forces them to look at it, then I don't think it's unusual once they've formed that view that they would then drop it sooner rather than later. I I think that's right. And it's probably a good thing for the taxpayers of New South Wales, because if this is and was a malicious prosecution, then the sooner it's brought to an end, uh, probably the better if he decides to uh, seek compensation and I'm not sure if he will or not. So anyway, the charge was dropped by the DPP and they put out a statement saying this in terms of their reasons for it. They said the applicable public health order in its terms did not restrict a person to a single place of residence. The evidence was unable to establish that Don Harwin left his place of residence without a reasonable excuse. So he was freed of the charge, and that might have been the end of it, but there's been a series of investigations and a lot of public interest in the matter, and ultimately the Upper House of the New South Wales Parliament decided through a committee to investigate the matter. They put on a call for documents, so they asked the executive to produce... Um, all documents about the matter, and that's happened. Um, And those documents um, have been the subject of some media and the Whigs um, have them um, in a complete form, so we've gone through them. And they reveal, I think, a quite disturbing series of events that really call into question uh, the bona fides of this prosecution to begin with. Um, What they basically show is a series of events on the 9th of april uh, which was the day that the fine was issued Um, as i've said the story broke on the 8th and the police did most of their investigations uh, over those two days the 8th um, and the 9th there is um, in that bundle of documents at the upper house got a statement from a detective chief inspector stuart bell so a very senior police officer who was allocated by the police to investigate the matter and He uh, talks about in his statement that he went to Don Harwin's house on the ninth of April. uh, Went in there. He was let in. uh, He spoke to him. There was a solicitor um, who who was on the phone um, who assisted in the process. And basically, they had a conversation uh, with Don Harwin about where he'd been and where he'd been living um, and so forth. And he gave his basic version, which is that after the or prior to. Uh, the implementation of the public health order, he had moved to Pearl Beach. He decided that the internet, internet access was better and that it was a more appropriate place to live uh, with the pending public health restrictions coming into place. And he certainly told them in no unclear terms that he had two places of residence, one in inner Sydney and one uh, in Pearl Beach.
1: And our listeners might remember this was the time between March and September when Parliament had adjourned for that lengthy period and so he wasn't going to be... Attending Macquarie Street in person for parliamentary sittings, and I think he would told pretty clearly the police officers that you know, Pearl Beach was also a place where he used to go and live and work for extended periods of time, mm. and that wasn't an unusual thing for him to do. And he'd been there at the time that that um, stay-at-home direction, if we can call it that. First came into operation very yep. quickly at the end of March.
3: Mm. So this statement uh, that we've got then uh, concludes by saying this. Um, I then completed a comprehensive email, which I forwarded via the chain of command with the results of the investigation. I then received a telephone call from Assistant uh, Commissioner Cook, who told me something in brackets: issue harm Harwin with an infringement notice for breach of the Public Health Act. So you might think on the face of that statement that um, he had formed a view uh, that Harwin was guilty and that then uh, processes had taken place and the fine was issued. However, under this call for documents, the police or the executive had to release all documents about it, and all documents obviously include a formal police statement but also include emails and text messages. Uh, So all of those things came through. And what they basically show of interest is that on the 9th of April... Is
1: this the email from Stuart Bell Briefing Assistant Commissioner Stacey Maloney? Yeah. Yeah, and and the Assistant Commissioner Cook? Yeah. Yeah, so the key part, I think, Steve, is... Where he sets out everything that Harwin had told him, and then at the end he says it could be construed that Harwin had a reasonable excuse why he was at the Pearl Beach premises. One of the listed excuses, while it is ambiguous, is moving between different places of residences, although it's hard to see how that's ambiguous. Um, Harwin has two residences, um, the Officer of Bell continues, and therefore it could be argued that he meets that criteria. He also attended a medical appointment and attended his place of work. They, they were also both two exemptions under the um, public health direction. Based on this, um, the language here is a little bit difficult to understand. This is based on this, a legal advising, would a warning or an infringement should be issued? I, I think he's asking a question. We, we'd like a legal advising about whether a warning or an infringement should be issued.
3: I think that's right, yeah.
1: Uh, And then he says he's following up some other details. And then next we know is the Commissioner of Police is asking for more updates.
3: So she received this email. She then forwarded it uh, to Jason Weinstein, who is the Chief of Staff to the Commissioner of Police and also obviously a sworn police officer. And she said, "Whiny, FYI, Mr Loy has been briefed by Mr Cook. We'll let you know how we go tomorrow. So the clear suggestion from all of those communications is that legal advice is needed and the investigation will continue um, on the 10th of April. Uh, The Chief of Staff of the Commissioner then responds, and I should say that email from Stacey Maloney was sent at 6.35pm. The Chief of Staff, Jason Weinstein, then responds at 6.37pm so just a couple of minutes later, saying, Stace, the COP, i.e. Commissioner of Police, is asking for an update. I need more than that, please. And then...
1: Something uh, obviously happens offline.
3: There's obviously been a telephone conversation Yeah. because then at 7.04pm, so about half an hour later, um, the Chief of Staff to the Commissioner of Police writes to Stacey Maloney and says, Stacey, can you get a bell to do an event ASAP. Now in police language, an event is an entry on the COPS system.
0: COPS there is is the actual acronym, it's Computerised Operational Policing System. It's the primary piece of software that the police use to keep track of ordinary matters and investigations.
3: That in this circumstance signifies an intention to lay a charge or to issue a fine. So in the matter of sort of half an hour to an hour, it's gone from uh, the investigating officer thinking that he probably hasn't committed an offence in circumstances where it's clear that he hadn't on any reasonable reading of the order, an intention to continue the investigation the next day and an indication that it's necessary to get legal advice to the chief of staff, to the commissioner of police, uh, sending an email uh, asking Bell basically... Uh, to charge him or fine him to start that process.
1: And then Stacey Maloney replies a relatively short time later all over it.
3: So that raises a whole lot of troubling questions. Mm. I mean, firstly, a Minister of the Crown has been prosecuted for no good reason. Mm. That seems quite clear. Uh, the Commissioner of Police, when first asked about it on the media, said that he would be speaking to the Police Minister and putting questions basically through the police minister to Harwin. So there's a public indication from the Commissioner of Police that uh, the Minister for Police is involved in this. And also, what, what,
0: why is that the suggested way by the police commissioner? Like, if you're investigating a crime or an alleged crime, you send a police officer and of sufficient rank, given this is a Minister of the Crown, to go and speak to them. That's fine. Fine. Why... Would the police commissioner engage the minister of police at all? And who is he to ask for an explanation through a minister? I mean, who's in control of the state? Yeah, it's very,
3: very odd. Another interesting aspect of it in terms of this proposal to get legal advice that had been raised is that the New South Wales Police have given conflicting statements about the relevance of legal advice to these charging processes Mm -hmm. um, or finding processes. So a spokesperson recently said that the New South Wales Police had a policy of urging all officers to, quote, seek legal advice in relation to the interpretation of public health orders prior to issuing an infringement notice. Yet Mick Fuller said uh, quite recently, after things were raised in the media, that he didn't seek legal advice in relation to Harwin's matter. Uh, because, quote, we hadn't sought legal advice for other matters. Um, There's clearly an intention coming out of these emails prior to the Commissioner's Office getting involved to seek legal advice. It was obviously needed because the decision they made was wrong-headed and legally wrong. Yet Mick Fuller has prevented all of that happening, it would seem, or his office, and seems to have issued a direction, no other interpretation on the evidence I think is that obvious and uh, Mick Fuller, as as I understand it has not addressed these questions seems to have issued um, a a directive that the Minister be fined now that raises a question about whether this was a political prosecution and anyone who knows a bit about New South Wales state politics (laughs) would appreciate that Don Harwin is a leading factional operator in the moderate faction uh, which the Premier is part of um, and David Elliott, who's the police minister, is a factional uh, heavyweight in the centre right, I think it's called, faction. So, this is all part of the context <clears throat> that raises really concerning sort of inferences um, and possible conclusions about why this happened.
2: Do you have anything there from David Elliott, the police minister, in his response, or did he give a press conference? Or was he ever asked anything regarding the matter?
3: He seems to have been pretty successful in staying out of um, a lot of the public commentary on it. Oh,
2: but he's the police minister, I'm not mistaken. He is. Interesting.
3: Yeah.
1: Commissioner Fuller certainly seems to own the case to a certain degree, in the sense that he's made public comments calling it my decision to proceed with a penalty infringement yep. notice, um, and he's talked about how he stands by my decision to have that infringement notice um, issued, which I think also just raises another really concerning aspect of this case and the decision-making processes and kind of thinking processes of our Commission of Police, because you have a process which involves the Director of Public Prosecutions reviewing all of the evidence and forming a view that there's no reasonable prospects of a conviction. It's not a matter that should proceed because there's insufficient evidence to um, suggest any wrongdoing and they terminate criminal proceedings on that basis. And then you have the Commissioner of Police who is the boss of all police officers who have the discretionary capacity to charge people with a whole range of different criminal offences every single day in this state, saying that he stands by the decision... Mm a decision that is plainly incorrect and could entitle Mr Harwin to a large amount of damages um, by way of malicious prosecution compensation. And it just shows this real intransigence and this real lack of capacity to accept wrongdoing, lack of capacity to kind of be reflective (laughs) and see... Reason. It's also a lack
3: of transparency because if you're intransigent and you will never admit that you were completely wrong, then you continue this process of obscuring what really happened. Mm. Because there must be a reason why such a wrong decision was made. And if the reason such a wrong decision was made was because Mick Fuller sat in his office and didn't get legal advice and read the public health order and misread it... Well, that's something that people should know. Or if but to it's say because you he's with his by,
1: pals at the Daily Telegraph and on these the shock jocks on the radio and stuff saying, oh, let's get this
2: guy.
3: Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, we, there's no evidence here to conclusively say that Mick Fuller has acted at the direction of the police minister and gotten involved in state politics in a completely impermissible and wrong way. And so we can't sort of suggest that or state that. But it's, it's a possible inference that arises from A, a completely wrong-headed decision and B, a total failure to own the decision and explain why the error was made. That's the key Mm. lack of transparency here, I think.
2: What I find also interesting that wasn't brought up in the uh, parallel investigation that was done by Media Watch on this exact topic on Monday night, or at the time of recording, you'll find it on the Media Watch uh, archives there, is that um, there was a photo taken of Minister Harwin. Uh, on this holiday, that was published before the 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 issue for the arrest. Um, so who knew who's down there? Who was sent down there to take the photo? Mm. What is that? What questions does that mm. bring up?
3: There was a lot of things really off about the media coverage. I mean, he's an openly gay man, and he's also very overweight. And the picture that was taken, I think...
1: Oh, there was of him such body inside, shaming, absolutely. but
3: him inside his house, he had a male friend who was staying at the house with him who'd apparently recently come back from the UK and had to quarantine and couldn't quarantine at his own home because of someone there who was medically vulnerable. And they took this picture of Don Harwin, I think, inside his house just in a way that I think was playing with kind of homophobia and prejudice. And then the pictures they continually chose to put in the paper depicting him just accentuated his size and, as Flick said, just engaged in sort of body shaming. It was just a really disgusting series of media articles, I It thought. was. And also completely unjustified because the guy didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. What's your yeah.
0: take, Manny? I mean, it strikes me as a constitutional problem. The, it, you can start with the with the police commissioner refusing to accede to the advice of the Director of Public Prosecutions as to what the law is. I mean, he's bound by that. Well, he has traditionally been bound by that. It's not for him to say what the law is. The DPP, the Chief Prosecuting Authority says this is what the law is. You say, well, I'm sorry I was wrong about that. I thought I was right. But we're not going to charge people in the future. How many other people have been charged on the police commissioner's erroneous understanding of the law that he maintains, right? Then you've got this involvement in charging a minister of the crown. What was the rush? Why did mm. he have to be charged quickly? Mm. They could have taken weeks, mm-hmm. got the legal advice, and, yes, it does... It, I'm sorry, but when you are charging a minister of the crown, you should, they should be treated a little bit differently at least in the level of concern, because you are damaging, as Stephen said, not only the individual but the state mm. because you're messing with the apparatus of mm. it. And so what we've got, and I, I don't Especially know... Especially over
1: such a minor matter, in yeah. a way. I mean, it's it's a fine. Is yeah. it so media-driven or politically-driven or both? It's not as if it's, you know, he's posing a risk to people in terms of their physical safety or... You know, it's not violent offending or something like that, which might justify some greater urgency. Yeah,
0: but I think I think the message that was being sent out at the time, and again, see, we're we're stuck with speculation about what it might be because, frankly, we don't have a proper. This this should warrant a judicial inquiry in my view, Um, and we don't have that inquiry. But if you recall back at the time, there was this sense that we need that the government. The executive government needs to firmly show that it's going to lock people up, that we're going to enforce these orders and so on. And so maybe that's what was operating on the minds of these people. Mm. We can't have a minister walking and flouting these laws. we better charge them, Mm. right? Yeah. doesn't matter that he's innocent. The public messaging requires us to charge him, notwithstanding the fact he's innocent. Now, if that's the case, that's firstly disgusting, Mm. but at least they can admit that. Yeah.
3: There's no transparency.
0: No. Another really
3: uh, concerning aspect of the matter which feeds into this theory that it's driven by media sort of imperatives is that on the evening of the 9th of April when the fine was issued, the media, uh, in particular uh, 2GB, I think it was, was reporting that he had been fined prior to him being fined. So and you know these are very senior police officers we're talking about here. We're talking about senior inspectors, um, assistant commissioners, chief of staff to the commissioner. We're talking someone about
1: basically the top handful of police officers yeah, in this state.
3: Absolutely. Someone in that small circle you would you would assume has either passed that information directly to the media thought that it's more important that the media knows before Harwin knows, or they've given it to someone else who has. Mm. And it's interesting, in the call for documents, um, in the material that came, uh, there's text messages between two senior police officers Mm. where they're joking about the possibility that Bell has already leaked it to the media. I'm not not assuming that Bell did, and Bell's not in that conversation, but even at that point, there's a consciousness about uh, media imperatives... And if very senior police officers or even junior police officers are making decisions because of the priorities of the media and the priorities um, of perception, then it's going to impact in a deleterious way on the proper and lawful execution of their duties potentially.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth reading out the text messages. Lots of media out the front of his place is one of them. the... Me- is the- one of the messages in the response is, Belly tipped them off, question mark. LOL. Lol. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's at 2.49pm. Yep. So that's before... It's prior to the
3: finding, The finding, mm.
1: and before Bell has had the conversation with him at his home, right? Yep. Because Bell turns up at 2.40. Yeah. Mm, that's and, interesting.
3: You know, this is a broad, <clears throat> broader issue in the conduct of law enforcement investigations in Australia generally and it just seems now to basically be a regular occurrence that when a big raid or bust happens that you have journalists there that are clearly part of the investigation in a sense, Mm. are they they tipped off about highly sensitive matters um, of law enforcement. There was one recently in Wellington where There was a big series of raids on drug houses and 60 minutes minutes were there actually entering uh, the curtilage of the property of the person and as the person's being dragged out, They're screaming questions at the person. Yeah. Um, It was either 60 Minutes or a current affair.
1: They were at the briefing before the kind of covert operation and everything. It was extraordinary. I think there was
2: one in Rockdale recently as well.
3: Yeah, Um, she kept
0: Musselman. There you go. Indeed. But
3: if you you pay attention... That was a joint AFP-ASIO operation. And 60 Minutes. And 60 Minutes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you pay attention to the videos that you see on Facebook or even on TV, often they have the little New South Wales Police logo on them Mm. because they're taken by police officers. And they're given out. And they're given out mm. in what, in my view, are in acts of contempt mm. because once you've charged someone, court processes have started. Yeah, for, sure. But they do it regularly. In fact, I had some evidence kicked out because they'd done that. But it's just what
3: yeah. they do. I mean, it's obviously important that the community knows the work of police, right, as a sort of general uh, proposition. But there is no need for them to be getting this close. Mm. And when they're getting this close, it's... Um, a perversion of the proper imperatives of policing, in my view. Mm. And all of these illegitimate factors come in. becomes about people's careers. It becomes about uh, grandstanding. It becomes about pleasing political masters. And, you know, interestingly, Mick Fuller seems to have a pattern where it's always the right-wing media that he seems to bless with these sort of scoops. Like in your case, Flicky, it was Sky News um, who got the scoop that the New South Wales Police would be opposed in the Black Lives Matter protest case, and Ben, prior prison. to police actually making their proper statutory decision about considering the representations of the organisers, um, and Two GB seems to be the recipient often of it, and that you know when it's the right wing media more often than not that seems seem to be getting privileged. again that issue of the politicisation of policing arises.
1: Is your mattress making
0: noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices
1: start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. a world without murder. I
2: lost my best
1: friend. I lost my aunt. I
2: lost my my father.
1: I lost my wife. Just six years ago, the homicide rate in this country had reached epidemic proportions. It seemed that only a miracle could stop the bloodshed. But instead of one miracle, we were given three, the precognitives. Within just one month under the pre-crime program, the
0: murder rate in the District of Columbia was reduced 90%.
3: They were going to be waiting for me in
0: the car. He was going to rape me. I was going to be stabbed. Right here. Within a year, pre-crime effectively
1: stopped murder in our nation's capital.
0: In the six years we've been conducting our little experiment, there hasn't been a single murder. And now, and now pre-crime, pre-crime can work for you. Pre-crime? It works. It works. It works. It works. It works. It it works. works. It on, on Tuesday, Tuesday, April 22nd, 22nd. vote yes, yes on the, on the National pre
2: crime Initiative. Okay, that was a clip from Minority Report, uh, which is a great movie. And um, we're going to skip movie reviews. Uh, I've tried to sway us in that direction, but the Whigs just they won't let me. They won't indulge me. Emmanuel Kirkosherian is going to take us on a little journey now.
0: I am. It's a good movie, Minority Report.
2: It is a good fictional film.
0: And for those who are not familiar with it, it's a scenario where there are three three people who have precognitive abilities, who are laying in a vat, uh, who foresee crimes being committed, and then people are arrested and imprisoned mm-hmm. because these three people foresee the crimes being committed.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, in New South Wales and indeed all over Australia now, we have a system like that, except the people who are giving the advice on arresting people and putting them in prison or putting them on orders that basically control their lives, have no precognitive abilities. Um, They tend to be mental health professionals who rely on what I would say are statistics that have, well, what they say are statistics that have no scientific validity, that is they say that themselves, and some other voodoo um, to tell judges that people are risky and to put them in jail or to put them on orders that basically control every aspect of their life. And when I say every aspect, I mean their finances, their access to the internet, they have to open up their homes, every word that they say to any shrink is given to the authorities and so on, and they have to account for every movement. They're attached to uh, collars on their their feet Mm. that track their movements... And if they go outside their house for a smoke, um, they can be, and indeed have been, in matters that I've been involved with, charged mm. for breaching their orders because they walked out the front of their place for a smoke. Mm. So we have this pre-crime regime. Mm. Um, that's the short version of what's bad with it. I'll, I'll go into a bit more detail. But basically, not everybody can be subject to these things. Mm-hmm. Um it's for the main part serious offenders, and serious offenders are generally speaking pedophiles, or people who have committed offences intending or recklessly causing the death of people, uh, or and things of that nature. Okay, right, and or terrorists. Yeah. yeah.
1: Or grievous bodily harm or wounding.
0: Or grievous bodily harm. Serious or wounding. violence. Serious yeah. violence. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Serious violence. So, if you've gone to jail for those things. Mm-hmm and you're in jail, or you're on an order, that is, say, you're out on parole or something, you're liable to be picked up by one of these orders. Upon release? Upon... Well, prior to release. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then on your release, you move into one of Uh those orders. okay. In relation to terrorists, there are certain circumstances where you you can be... have not... you can not be in prison and then be picked up by one of these orders. Okay. Okay. So... Um... To give you an idea, and so you might think, for example, that this is a reasonable proposition, that there are people who come out of jail who are so risky that we might lock them up. Um, Maybe that's right. Mm -hmm. Um, In principle, I don't agree with it because there is no way you can know if a person is going to commit an offence. And in that circumstance, you may find yourself locking someone up for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. Because these orders can be renewed for the rest of their life, despite the fact they were never going to commit an offence. Mm,
2: so it's like, a, kind of like a, an indictment on the rehabilitative nature of prison.
0: Well, it's it's pretty much an acceptance that prison, prison, doesn't prison doesn't rehabilitate. Doesn't rehabilitate in many circumstances. Okay, and what is generally sought in these matters, and I've done a fair few of them for for serious offenders, is You've got to do everything that you're told when you're in prison Hmm. and not buck up at anything or they will deny you parole and then they will continue to try and lock you up or put you on an order. So it's really a control mechanism and what has emerged is kind of, if we're being generous about it, this fear that, well, we've got these powers now There's this person who we could exercise these powers on. If we don't exercise the power, then we're going to be criticised for not exercising the power. Mm. So what was meant to be only for exceptional cases... Right. You know, people are real bad.
2: Sure. Pedophiles, terrorists, as you were saying. Yeah,
0: but not only that, but bad examples of that... Yes, yes. ...has now been extended to mere technical inclusions into that sphere. Mm. So let me give you an example of this, and this is a case that I did... Um, Hugh Remington, who was in court while we were doing it and, and wrote an excellent article in The Monthly in which he, he dubbed this bloke the Aquarian Terrorist and I urge you to read that. But um, it's a case called the State of New South Wales and Dixon. I say and because it's a civil matter, um, not a criminal matter. The civil standards apply in these matters. In fact, in practice, less than the civil standards apply. Um, 2020 New South Wales Supreme Court 100. Uh, Mr Ditson was a marijuana smoker. Um, He was a proponent of legalisation. He'd written some letters to people in power, including police and ministers and so on, um, which on my view, and I I made this submission, were not actually threats of violence, but certainly raised the idea of violence, right? Uh, But he was a a proponent of legalisation who'd really not done anything severely wrong in his life, Um, And anyway, he was from South Australia, but he finds himself one day up in Nimbin, where he's at for a festival. Um, And he's charged with cannabis possession. Um, He's charged with refusing to comply with a police order. He's charged with resisting arrest. And he's carted to the police lockup in Lismore. So these are all really minor offences that he's been charged with, right? Sort of thing you might go to a festival, have a bit of weed, get into a blue. That's the sort of thing you get charged with. Maybe you deserve to do time. Maybe you don't. Depends on the circumstances, and then you go on with your life. What happens to him is he's locked up in Lismore, and past some past midnight, right? Um, he's released. He doesn't want to be released at this point, right? Why they've arrested him? They, he doesn't want to be released. He wants to remain in the lockup because he's, it's freezing cold. He's not wearing a t-shirt. Sorry, he's wearing a t-shirt, but he does. He's not wearing shoes. Um. And he's 30 kilometres away from his tent with no way of getting there. Mm. So he cracks the shits and he throws a rock at police cars. All right? Okay. Breaks a couple of windows, a few hundred bucks worth of damage, and he's... To
1: try and get locked up again so he can has someone to sleep for the night?
0: Well, I mean, I'm not sure whether it was that or whether it was rage or whatever, but, you know. Um, anyway, as he's being arrested, um, he said... To the top of something like this, that you guys are the ones who started the war, right? Anyway, I won't go through the, all of the details. Like terrorism. So, well, so he's made threats to ministers and so on. Okay, hang on threats. Well, not threats, but he's he's said to have made threats. Okay, to ministers. The, you, but right, you said I, earlier that I they said were, they weren't. But yeah. let's 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 be generous to, okay. the, to the state. Yep. Um, and then when he's in custody. Um. It said that he said, and he denies this, and I believe him for what it's worth. Um, It said that he said, I'm a political activist and a member of the Marijuana Party. I want to set fire to each police station in the state and country and teach the state and country a lesson and hit them where it hurts financially. I would like to blow up Parliament House. This causes laughter. Where he's saying it, which is a mandatory communication session mm. that's been run in a jail. Because mm. nobody thinks that this guy could blow up every police station. He's certainly never done anything remotely like that yeah. before.
2: But you can't say bomb in an airport.
0: Well, anyway, those words he, he denies saying them. He says we should. He said we should fight back against Parliament. Right, right, right. right. Anyway, um, on the back of that, they get an interim terrorist <laughs> high risk offender order against him. Mm. Right? Yep. this is a guy who's never done any serious violence mm. wouldn't know how to make a bomb mm. Justice Iris ordered an interim terrorist order against him that fundamentally controlled his life upon his release mm. right? every aspect of it every aspect of it such that the state would not permit him to go to his own father's funeral mm. during the time this interim order was in existence mm. Wow. right? So we turn up at the final hearing, and by this stage the brief has come to me. Um, Mr Tedeschi's on the other side. Tedeschi's on the other side for the state, with the junior. Um, and a courtroom packed, when I say packed, you know, ten people who all looked like they were some counter-terrorism cops or mm. something like that, you know, the usual suspects. Um, it's all very serious and to-do. Um, and... We call one of the state-appointed experts who gets in the witness box and says, I see plenty of people like this every day down at the mental health clinic that I work at where people say things like this all the time. Then, you know, it doesn't go so far as to say they're not terrorists, but they're not terrorists. And anyway, the, the state is arguing, you know, he's making these threats and so on, and I kind of stand up and say, the state says that there's a war on drugs they use the language that he's using are they terrorists for using that language
2: mm.
0: Mm. right that's the fundamental problem with the state's case is mm. that it's only language that is used and it's language that the state itself uses mm. anyway ultimately one of the psychologists said he was nevertheless a risk of committing a serious terrorist offense i don't know how they got to that point. Mm. Mm. uh but ultimately one because Technically, um, a terrorist defence. We, we got it because the technical definition of a terrorist defence is how we want it, right? Right. Yeah. Um, but that shows you just the sort of people that these orders are being used against mm-hmm. and ruining the lives of. Um, that's just a guy who wants pot to be legalised and was wrote a few silly letters and said something. He says he didn't say, it, but let's assume he said it. Said something a bit silly. Yeah, yeah, I guess you, know? you. Yeah, mm. yeah. How yeah, many yeah. times have each of us said to somebody else, "I'm going to kill you"? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus, I'd blow this place up. Yep, yep. Right? Yep. So it's, it's really yeah.
3: creating a new category of high risk offender orders because you've got the category that pertains to serious personal violence and sex matters, and then you've got the category um, of terrorist offenders the threshold for an order against a person who might co- commit a terrorist offence is lower. So you, so there's various different categories, but it includes, for example, a person who is in custody and is um, a terrorism activity offender, and that's defined in turn to include a person who's engaged in acts in support of violent extremism, um, that in turn is defined to include a person who has engaged in acts that are practised by violent extremists. So there's all of these different definitions that can deem you to be um, a terrorism activity offender.
1: So if you, for example, have been roughed up by the police during an arrest or like a, a client of Stephen and mine who was arrested and um, capsicum sprayed for jaywalking and got very cross about it, Um, and made um, some verbal threats to the police Um, and over a period of time on other occasions had also um, gotten pretty cross at police and um, made verbal threats to them of things like, I'm going to slit your throat. Um, The state argument was, well, that's something that terrorists do or Mm. violent extremists do, therefore um, he is a terrorist activity offender. And that was accepted on an interim basis again by the Supreme Court, Justice Wright, I think it was. Um, And then the Court of Appeal ended up deciding not to decide that point on our appeal um, because the state ultimately decided that they were going to abandon their application. Mm. Um, But it's the type of... And in that particular case as well, the all of the expert evidence was um, this man has been experiencing untreated paranoid um, persecutory beliefs, where he perceives a threat from these authority figures like police officers, like corrective services officers, and he mouths off at them because mm. of that, because of his mental illness, a yeah. s- sort of schizo affective type. Um, Mental illness, and as soon as he started receiving treatment for that disease, all of the language Mm. stopped. Mm.
3: So they're basically using the Terrorism High Risk Offenders Act to create a new category, which is a person who's made threats to state officials, basically, whether police mm. um, or corrective services. And they're doing it through this distinction between terrorism and violent extremism. Mm. And in the matter uh, that Flick's talking about, for example, the state argued in that matter that violent extremism uh, can be constituted <coughs> by acts that are violent and extreme. By and a what threat they're...
1: of extreme violence. Yeah, yeah, So all exactly. you need to do yeah. is use language... Words out of your mouth that you never intend to act upon that involve a threat of extreme violence, which could be any type of mm. violence. Mm. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to shoot you. Yeah, and that meets the definition. And they're blurring the threshold the de- definition for terrorism.
3: And yeah, they're blurring the definitions. Which, I mean, violent extremism in all of the governmental definitions um, is uh, conduct. That includes um, a motivation of a political um, or religious, uh, etc. type.
1: It has to be cause-based. So you have to be motivated to further a cause. Political, religious. Oh, Oh, okay. um,
2: And he said he was a member of a party in this particular circumstance.
1: Somebody's drawn it. Yeah,
2: in your case, someone's drawn an inference to oh, a member of a political party. Whether that's true or not, he stated that he is marijuana, free marijuana. Was a political issue? So there you go. There. So that's the line that's drawn. If he didn't mention the political party, then potentially nobody would have drawn the dots. Is that right? Mm.
0: Yeah.
1: Although in our case, they didn't have any evidence of of cause motivation.
0: Interest, they went that far, didn't they? Interesting.
3: Yeah, they tried to say that violent extremism does not require that, basically. Yeah, right. um, and it's interesting because the only the only difference on the governmental definitions between terrorism and violent extremism is that terrorism has that additional element of trying to influence the government. You know, so classically, a terrorist has a demand; they want a particular outcome. Uh, whereas violent extremism seems to have been brought into the governmental uh, definitions and so forth to to include these sort of nihilistic Islamic extremists, for example, who are motivated by Islam or their interpretation of it, Mm. uh, but don't have a particular demand. They're just blowing themselves up Mm. on the streets and killing people without wanting any particular outcome. So that's the difference between violent extremism and terrorism, broadly speaking. But the state is trying to blur it even more to say, well, violent extremism is just extreme and violent, and therefore anyone who's advocated those sort of acts is therefore uh, able to be subject to orders under this Act. So it's creating a new category, basically, of someone who threatens state officials because that's what terrorists and violent extremists do. So if you've threatened it, you've used their methods and you're within the deeming provision.
1: And we all know how classically the trifecta turns into a threat to a police officer who's a state official. Mm. Like, it's just going to capture increasingly... People who are marginalised already and targeted by police in a way that is completely disproportionate to their conduct, but through an escalation, usually through escalation by police, mm. end up using language that's threatening.
3: So just to sort of explore a kind of contrary view, I mean, one of the things that kind of frustrates me uh, with the general criminal law is often we criminalise conduct that there's no real purpose in criminalising, you know, conduct that is not inherently antisocial. I mean, is there an argument that it is legitimate for the law uh, to focus more on risk assessment and to sort of assume, I guess, a duty of care to the community that is fulfilled by trying to accurately assess risk. I mean, is that not not an argument? Is that not not, a policy argument? It's
0: it's a policy argument that fails because it's not possible to accurately assess risk.
1: The evidence is that you can quite reliably um, assess in an individual, not on a kind of population basis, but in an individual that they are low risk, but once you move into assessing someone in the category of moderate or high risk, basically the reliability of that assessment is um, much undermined and m- much less certain. And they're the people <clears throat> that, from a policy perspective, would justify some response. I mean, low-risk mm. offenders, mm. That were just not, um, it's not justifiable.
3: I mean, I've represented people on really serious criminal matters who I know upon the expiration of their jail term will go and hurt other people. There are people that you can accurately assess that of. So does the state have a duty of care? Is there an argument for this kind of law?
0: No, I, I, I don't think there is because of that. Because the only way you can do that is by denying agency to the individuals. So, you know... I may be a high risk of committing an offence, but I may be determined to not commit an offence. And there's no way you can ever get around that possibility other than denying me my agency.
1: Mm. One of the real misgivings I have about these types of regimes, and so let's bear in mind they have two aspects to it. One can be post-sentence that you continue to be detained. That's the more serious Mm. kind of aspect of the regime. the other aspect of these types of regimes is that once you finish your sentence, you continue to be surveilled under this extremely onerous supervision regime, which might involve having sixty different conditions on your liberty, where you can live, who you can live with or not live with, your every single movement having to be um, monitored and pre-approved on a daily basis. You you can't walk around the block without approval, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. One of the real misgivings I have. With that idea, Steve, that there's some duty to the community to do this risk analysis for the purpose of then having this protective regime, is that we're not good enough at not making this so called protective regime counterproductive Mm -hmm. so as to justify it. So you see this in the types of breaches that occur. So breaches like, for example, someone is approved to... Um, go to the supermarket on a particular day, they walk into the car park of the supermarket, they're breached. Someone is approved to go to the beach with their mother that day, they go and buy a lotto ticket in the news agency on the way to the beach, they're breached. Mm. Someone who... um, is not engaging in any kind of behaviour that is directed to the risk that was initially assessed in terms of, say, a risk of sexual violence or something. They, you know, deviate from their curfew or they go to a train station outside of their um, approved movements or um, you know use the internet or whatever the conduct might be. Bearing in mind, none of that type of conduct would ordinarily be criminal, so it's all conduct that would ordinarily be yeah. entirely lawful, Yeah. and so you they get breached
2: because lapse in judgment, you forget it's such an extended period of time. Any, there's any, there's any any and question of there have been a few mm-hmm. cases
1: that have recognised the potential for the counterproductive impact of these supervision orders in particular. Um, so there was a case earlier this year where Justice Hamill in the Supreme Court dealt with a very rare application where the state actually applied to revoke one of their supervision Mm. orders. This was a case where um, a person um, who had committed some very serious sex offences when they were a teenager... Um were then sentenced to a period of incarceration with um, what had been intended by the sentencing judge to be um, a lengthy parole period to allow them to adjust to community living and get supervision and support in the community before their sentence end ended. Um, they were never released to parole and then faced this application um, for an extended supervision order which was imposed for a period of five years. But it ended up lasting almost 12 years because they kept getting breached for what the Supreme Court um, described as minor technical breaches that were not um, related to um, their risk of reoffending. They committed no other offences um, of a like kind or showed any kind of um, risk type behaviour. And the reason it lasted for almost 12 years was because every time they get breached, they get arrested, they get locked up by the local court inevitably. Over 90% of people get locked up for it. Mm. And it presses pause Uh on... The mm. length of the order. Right. So a five-year order isn't really a five-year order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's effectively could be an indefinite order. Yes, So yeah. long as you have a supervising officer who just continues to breach you for behaviour that is not really directed to the risk for which you're on the order.
0: Right. And then your housing is disrupted, yeah. your life is disrupted, your access to mental health professionals is disrupted, mm. and so your rehabilitation goes backwards. Yes, yeah.
1: And the other reason why I think we're just not good enough at kind of executing these orders to justify this this policy decision because it doesn't actually make communities safer because it, it can make communities less safe is when you look at the incarceration. So you, you were talking about, Jim, at the beginning, you know, does does the prison project kind of bear out in terms of making the a rehabilitative yeah. effect? Yeah. And I was looking at a, another judgement where they were reflecting on these kind of risk assessments that were done at this prisoner throughout the, the time that they were um, in custody <coughs> and a risk assessment was done. They'd committed um, quite a serious violent um, offence in custody of um, injuring a prison guard during one of their periods in custody, but at the beginning of their um, or relatively early on in their incarceration, they were assessed as being not high enough to warrant admission into the violent offender's treatment program and then by the end of their sentence, they were assessed as high risk and the Supreme Court said, in other words, while serving a sentence of imprisonment, um, the offender's risk of violence has increased.
3: Mm. Which is unsurprising. But Mm. it's worth
0: noting, you know, in terms of our ability to assess the risk... The science is that they can't do it scientifically. Mm-hmm. They use these statistics that don't relate to Australian offenders, for the most part. Uh, they use this psychological p- process, which is really just a checklist. Mm, very crude. You know, is, is this person has this person committed an offence of this kind on multiple occasions? Yes. Well, that makes them a higher risk. Mm. Right, right, right. It doesn't take into account that they might have committed. 10 offences in 10 days whilst they were on a drug bender and never done anything before or after. That's just taken into account as, well, they've committed 10 offences. So it's things like that. It's this crude analysis. And then all of this is bundled up together and put in front of a Supreme Court justice and maybe one or two witnesses are called, no more than that. Submissions are all done in writing before the hearing. The bulk of the evidence is stuff that would not ordinarily get in to your average civil trial, let alone a criminal trial, that's Mm. determining someone's incarceration because of special provisions that are made to just effectively permit the state to tender the opinion of everybody who's ever looked at Mm. the person in custody. It's quite oppressive how they tender evidence in those
3: matters too. Oh, They make no effort to reduce it to some sort of a fact sheet. It's just a deluge of sometimes thousands of pages. Oh, yeah. yeah police, cops events and, you know, mental health records and they're very... I, th- I find them very difficult to appear in sometimes, those Absolutely. matters.
0: Absolutely. And so, you and then Legal Aid gives you two days' worth of funding yeah. uh-huh. to, to defend against these, um, so you do about a week's work for nothing um, and you turn up and the test that has to be applied by the justice presiding is, is this person an unacceptable risk of committing a serious violence offence or terrorist offence, as the case may be? What the hell does an unacceptable risk mean? I can tell you that the statute says an unacceptable risk does not mean that it's more likely than not that they will commit another offence. So that the court need not be satisfied that on the balance of probabilities Mm -hmm. they are going to commit another offence. Right. Yeah. They. It can be a low risk. It can be a low likelihood mm. of committing a further offence. Mm. Uh, Especially if the further offence is quite a serious one. Yeah. 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 Right. Like but in the terrorism context. Yeah, but that's also used to say that you might commit murder, and that's a very serious matter. And so, basically, if you're if you're someone who looks kind of risky, it's very difficult for a justice to say, look. I'm not going to make this order. And so in the vast majority of Mm. cases, except where it's patently obvious that it ought not be made, they do make them. Mm. And it was so bad. I mean, the test is so bad that um, the Queensland rendition of this was taken up to the high court in a case called Farden and the attorney general of Queensland in 2004, 223 CLR Commonwealth law reports, five, seven, five. Um, and the High Court said it was fine. So they took it up on a sort of cable-like argument that um, the court really isn't making a decision when it's thinking about this sort of stuff. Uh, that's putting it on a really low level. but That, uh, that helps me. <laughs> but really, that, that, and, and the High Court said, no, this is something that's known to the law, the family law courts, great bastions of legal theory that they are, apply this test... Um, and so we're, we're... There's mental health legislation. Mental health yeah. legislation. But really, um, who is an acceptable risk? Mm. Who is prepared to say that any risk of a pedophile committing a pedophili- pedophile offence is acceptable? Nobody's prepared to say that. And if that's the truth, and in my view it is, then everybody who comes up for one of these orders run is almost, in, in almost every circumstance... He's going to have an order put against them, Mm. even if they have cooperated. Yeah. And at the moment, your cooperation means that the state doesn't bring the order, doesn't bring the application for the order. Mm. Who knows what happens in the fullness of time? Mm. Look, he's cooperated, you know, we've let him out on He's cooperated, Your Honour, but there's just this little residual risk, so we want to keep him under this order for five years. Yeah,
3: Mm. Is there a disproportionate impact here um, on Aboriginal people? Look, I have
1: said... um, to people working in this area. Like, we we really need some more data on this mm. stuff. We need someone to do maybe a PhD on this area because I suspect that there is. From my own experience, it seems to be another aspect of the system through which um, over-incarceration occurs. And I don't just mean kind of through continuing detention orders, but... Um, through the over-incarceration that inevitably flows from someone being on a supervision order and then they repeatedly get breached and arrested and spend, you know, 3, six, nine, 12 months back in jail every time. Um,
3: so what's the political economy behind all of this, do you think? Like, is this just part of mass incarceration and those sort of trends that accelerated basically since the 1970s, 80s?
0: I have a sort of working theory that with the advent of truth in sentencing legislation in the 80s that led to judges deciding how long people spent in prison and not the state. So once upon a time a judge would set a penalty and that would include a non-parole period and it would be a fairly high penalty and then the state... ...could realistically at any time let you out. Hmm. Let them out on licence. On licence. Yeah. so so
1: people were, I think, quite commonly getting out... ...after being convicted and sentenced for murder... ...after about 12 or 13 years. And now we've got standard non-parole period of 20 years... ...and that's kind of now the ballpark.
0: And so what I think happens is... ...that once upon a time there was an incentive... ...to be on good behaviour... ...because you could easily have a third of your non-parole period cut off. Mm. And now that incentive no longer exists... And so people just push through to their non-parole periods and then find themselves, if, they've, if they're, say, pedophiles or people who've murdered people, up against a parole board who's not going to give them parole, whatever they do, because politically they won't. And so it's that law and order kind of, you know, oh, well, we can't let criminals out. And so they finish their parole completely institutionalised mm. and then there really is something that needs to be done for these people because they haven't had the benefit of the parole and the licences that they used to get. And so I think it's the law and order craziness with a good dose of mismanagement and and sort of poorly thought-out legislation.
3: Mm. And, you know, the whole thing is kind of overlaid by the failure of our penal institutions to be anything other than brutal and traumatic. Uh, So when dealing with violent people who generally are people with a traumatic history... There, you know, We don't have institutions that are set up in a way to be therapeutic. Mm. We don't have an array of penal institutions that means that we can incarcerate and incapacitate in a way that doesn't make people worse. Mm. We just don't have the institutions to do it. We've got one simple idea. We've got a few prison farms around the edges, but we've basically got one simple idea, which is big brutal institutions. Mm.
1: Just crime-creating warehouses. Mm.
3: Yeah. And we just need to reinvent the paradigm, I think. I mean, the drug court How we incapacitate. Yeah,
0: the
3: drug court yeah well,
1: this is really interesting. So in a case of mine that I had, a young Indigenous offender, he had a really bad ICE problem, which he wanted to try and address. Um, ICE was connected to his offending, so there was kind of a link in terms of trying to um, address that problem as a way of reducing his risk. Um, And every time he would get into the community, off the back of a chronic drug problem, that was not going to be an easy fix. Instead of the supervising officer working with him in a kind of therapeutic and cooperative way to get him to the top of the wait list for the rehab centre, get him the bed, you know, keep him in the community seeing his drug and alcohol counsellor on a weekly basis in the meantime, they would just go on drug testing constantly. And, of Mm. course, he would breach because he was um, addicted to Mm. methamphetamine. Mm. And so every time he got close to the top of the list for the rehab centre, he went back to jail. Mm. And the counsellor that he was working with came and gave evidence. We called him to give evidence um, in the Supreme Court And he gave this um, evidence about how in the drug court they have this therapeutic model which acknowledges that people who have a drug problem are not going to um, stop using drugs overnight and they have a kind of um, progressive... System which acknowledges slip ups and acknowledges yep. that people might mm. have some dirty urine tests along the way, but as long as they are still engaging with the program and trying to um, address their drug problem, they don't get immediately <laughs> booted off the problem mm. uh, off the program. And that if you did take an approach where you immediately boot people off the program, like that would just never work because mm. it won't um, help the person to fix their problem, and that won't help the community. But this, this high-risk offender model, which, you know, is a, by its purpose the paramount kind of object of the act is protection of the community, it doesn't give effect to that paramount purpose or object because it doesn't actually allow the process of rehabilitation to take place because it's so punitive just immediately reaching people before they have a chance to actually engage and, you know, get housing that's stable and all of the things that need to be in place to be mm. able to ward off um, the triggers or the, the vulnerabilities that lead to offending.
3: So it's not going anywhere, this scheme, right? I mean, how can it be sort of usefully modified, do you think? It's not going to be repealed. I think there's no doubt about that.
0: No, and I don't... I mean, the the most useful thing would be to remove the paramount consideration as the safety of the community. Um, and I don't think that will happen. will um, reframe
1: that. I mean, I think there's been some good work in sentencing to... Understand that protection of the community doesn't just mean the displacement of effect of keeping people in jail and that protection of the community can actually be facilitated through the rehabilitation of offender and spending time on that and resources on that. I think that it has to come through much, at least on one aspect, much more work being done on how to appropriately supervise people on these regimes and for much more discretion to be involved before any kind of breach action is taken um, and sensible decisions to be made about not breaching people for conduct that whilst might technically breach the order um, it is just not at all concerned <laughs> with their risk profile. Mm. Um, you know, like stepping into the supermarket... Um, Car park when you're entitled to go to the supermarket and it's just not connected at all to your risk profile. It's just crazy.
3: There seems to sort of be bureaucratic overreach as well. Like all these cases where technically you can make an argument that it fits within the Act. So these bureaucratic kind of impulses take over where if you can make an application that you do, Mm. then you do because you might be criticised if you don't. Mm. And I think that's the bureaucratic logic that leads to applications under the Terrorism Offenders Act being made in respect of mentally ill people who, who are not motivated by any cause whatsoever and are not terrorists.
0: I think um, I think it should go back to the Attorney-General. Well, I mean strictly the decision is made by the Attorney-General but it should be something with fanfare. There should be some, some way to publicise the fact that what is being done is being done because this just goes under the radar. Nobody mm-hmm. talks about it. Routinely orders are made that prevent the media from accessing court files in relation to these matters. And it's just, I think fundamentally there needs to be more transparency and these things shouldn't be run in a day in front of a Supreme Court judge. So the other thing I'd like to see is more funding, a yeah. lot more funding. I mean, give me the resources of a big law firm um, and two barristers running the matter and we could really make a swing of one of these things and run it over the course of two weeks. Mm. But there's not just not the funding for it. Hmm. It's real kind of fundamental human rights involved, but also
3: really unpopular people. Yeah. So it's not a good combination.
2: Welcome back to the wigs, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. It's great to uh, have your um, your ears. Um, we, we imagine all your ears when we uh, sit down and have our discussions. Just a Thousands sea of, ears. of ears. So many ears. Uh, we, fun things, anyone? On that note, fun things. Um, let's go. We'll start with Mr. Stephen Lynch. I never go time. first. No, so no, I think, no, I I think the
3: Deputy Mayor of Dubbo <laughs> should go first, I think. Well, speaking of Dubbo. Mmm. Uh, One of the uh, beneficial uh, side effects um, of the pandemic Mm. with uh, overseas travel being banned is that I've had a flood of visitors to Dubbo. Mm. So we had family last weekend. We... Had friends a couple of weekends before that. We've got friends... For the first time um, ever? For the <laughs> first time ever, <laughs> my friends who don't live in Dubbo are actually coming what, to visit what me in Dubbo. are doing this weekend? <laughs> yeah, because Dubbo's got the zoo and Dubbo's got all sorts of things and uh, people can't travel. They can't even travel interstate to a certain degree, so they can't travel overseas. So they're all visiting Dubbo.
2: Dubo Dub Vegas, mm. as we like to call it. Uh, Felicity Graham. Well,
1: on that note, that's my fun thing. I'm going to Dubbo next Aye. week. I'm going to hang out with the deputy mayor of Dubbo. Aye. Well, Aye. I'll probably go and hang out with Damien actually in Corners more.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Gosh, why not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, Dubbo. Um, have you ever been to Dubbo before?
3: She used to live in Dubbo. Yeah. Of course she did. Of I course. did. Yeah. Twice. I read the article. I remember. Yeah. I love Dubbo. The I love Dubbo. But but I like have an I
1: love oh, Dubbo mug, and, mug. and an I love Dubbo. Yeah, that campaign sure was a long time
3: is? ago now. Yeah. 10 to 15. Hang on, that years. was yeah. an actual campaign. That was, yeah, yeah, campaign. It was. We yeah.
2: should bring that, make it like a week's thing.
3: I love wigs. Well,
2: I love the wigs. Wigs, like Wigs Heart Dubbo or something like yeah, that.
3: a great idea. Fucking, I'm full of them. Mate, Dubbo loves the wigs. There's been quite a lot of stories in the Dubbo media about our very successes. Yeah. Where, well, I don't really think Jim's very happy
1: about the most it, recent media in the Dubbo... Uh, Jim...
3: Jim, I think
2: you mean Chris. They mean yes. That's what I'm talking <laughs> about. <laughs> the, the, pr- the producer of the wigs. Has
3: not really reflected in our listener stats, though, has it, for Dubbo? You know how we sort of get mm. LGA stats? Mm.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. No.
2: No, they've got, they've got better things to do, mate. The mm, zoo's in town. It's true. Manuel Kukasharian. One yeah.
0: of my best friends is getting married. One of my closest friends who I've been friends with, you know, since time immemorial is getting married. And so... Yeah. Him and another friend of mine are doing the traditional thing that we do, and the three of us are going away together for eloping. A night. We're the bucks help. night. Uh, but, oh, the I bucks mean, night! It, all right, it's yeah. a bucks night, but not the you know, not not a traditional bucks night, and not even a non-traditional Dubbo? bucks night. <laughs> we should go to Dubbo. Um, <laughs> Why not? Plenty of room. Yeah. So
2: I'm really looking forward to that. Cool, the, uh, and so um, there's this film called The Hangover, and they wake up with a.
0: <laughs> yes, you can't go to Thailand at the moment. No, but uh, you can go to the zoo at Dubbo. <laughs> so, Dub so so There you the go. Exactly right. We can. Will invite Mike Tyson? Yeah, exactly. Wasn't there a tiger? Yeah, yeah, there, <laughs> was, there was a Mike's
2: tiger, fun. and the From zoo. zoo. is frigging yeah. there. Oh, right. good stuff. Uh, yeah, so um, Jim, have you, you got do. a fun thing? Uh, uh, I'm going to be reading Andrew. Was that my last episode's no, no, fun was your thing? Last one, mate. You
1: do better. Um, oh. You just finished your exams.
2: Just so exams. So to celebrate. Okay. Exams go. They went. I fucking smashed them. So I'm sure by the time we released this, my failures would have um, been released. But <laughs> okay. what I did was I plugged, I plugged the guitar in from the last it's episode. But anyway. Well, mate, what are you going to do?
3: There's some people out there in listening Land who don't like it. Children and, listen to this, and
2: show. I apologise. Adults
1: who don't like it either, and I would.
2: And, well, mainly
3: the adults who don't like it. I think.
2: Well, likes. what are you going to do? Find another host. And I put <laughs> the amps up to eleven, and I just fucking. Oh, there we go again, busted. Just oh, wow. it was so great. Yeah, cool. the windows are still rattling. and and when I left the house, it was fantastic. So I'm looking forward to returning to that. I have two months of that. Uh, The kids love me. It's fantastic. Um, So thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and the wigs themselves for uh, uh, two fantastic episodes smashed out tonight, but the audience isn't supposed to know that. We uh, we love you. We appreciate your support. Great work. Keep up the fight and uh, don't give up the fight. Uh, We'll see you next episode.
3: Cheers, mate.
1: Thanks, Jim. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to
2: rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Mins here for the final time. I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Wigs Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions
0: and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions. Produced by Jim Minns.